I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. I'm honored to welcome to the podcast today Professor Emeritus at Harvard Law School, of course, Larry Tribe. Uh, Professor Tribe, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. My pleasure. Professor Tribe, how do you think the Democrats can most effectively put Trump on trial in the Senate? Well, it seems to me the House managers that Nancy Pelosi has selected uh, are the perfect team for the purpose. And the nation is really ready, I think, to consider for the first time in its history, the second impeachment of an incumbent president. I think it's unusual that the nation and indeed the world watched impeachable offenses of the highest order uh, occur in real time and on live television. We saw the president do uh, the worst possible thing, and that is try to overturn the results of a fair and free election, not simply by going to court, which he did many times and had a right to do, but by fomenting violent revolution, insurrection, and sedition through a course of conduct that led to a number of deaths in the Capitol. And I think that if the House impeachment managers put all of that material in front of the Senate, it will be very difficult for senators, uh, however loyal they may have been to the president, Republicans, along with Democrats, uh, not to convict Donald J. Trump. And in addition to convicting him, disqualify him from holding future office or receiving any benefits. And that would be unprecedented. Of course, it's unprecedented to have a second impeachment, but to actually convict and to bar the president under the 14th Amendment. My understanding, even though this is novel constitutional ground, is that the conviction itself is insufficient to bar you would need to convict and then by a simple majority vote, bar the president from serving in, in future capacity. That's right. Although let me, uh, if you don't mind, correct one thing you said, you said under the 14th Amendment, this is quite separate from Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which was passed after the Civil War. Uh, that section says that anyone who engages after taking an oath to uphold the Constitution, an oath of fidelity to the United States, who engages in insurrection or rebellion can never hold any office, state or federal, uh, in the United States. That is mentioned in the Article of Impeachment, but that's not the basis. It is under Article 1 and Article 2 of the Constitution that, that this impeachment proceeding is being brought, and in particular, it is, uh, it is brought to remove the future opportunities of someone who has already shown himself a danger to the Republic. So by convicting him in and of itself, would that be sufficient to effectively bar him from future office or would that be a no. separate vote? No, you're, you're right that it would take a separate uh, decision, a decision that, as you say, requires only a majority of the Senate to disqualify him in the future. The Constitution is explicit in Article 1, Section 3, that there are several possible things that can happen when the Senate agrees with the House that the, uh, that the president has committed a high crime and misdemeanor. One is conviction. That we really need as a 
first step. The second is removal. We don't need that. Events have taken uh, taken their own course, and by the time this trial occurs, he will no longer be in office. Uh, and the the third is disqualification from holding future office. That is important and needs to be done separately. The rationale for it uh, is very much the same as the rationale for removing him if he were in office, and that is that he is a continuing danger to democracy and to the rule of law. The fact that there is a single article of impeachment, the context of which is the insurrection was precipitated by the effort to enact a coup uh, to reverse the election results. That is, of course, the important context. It was not necessary, in your opinion, to include that in the article itself or as a second article um, that is to undermine democracy and to specifically uh, instruct the vice president not to perform his constitutional duty in certifying or presiding over the certification of the results. That could have been made a separate article of impeachment. Indeed, there could have been a number of articles of impeachment, but now both speed and simplicity are important. It seems to me that because there was a unified course of conduct, it made sense for the House of Representatives in its article of impeachment to focus on the way in which the president sought to overturn the results of the election by insurrection uh, without separately focusing on how he twisted Raffensperger's uh, arm, the, the Secretary of State of Georgia, to try to threaten him with punishment unless he would disenfranchise a number of Georgia citizens by, uh, quote, finding, unquote, 11,800 votes that, that didn't exist for the president. It wasn't necessary to go beyond what this article focuses on. The encompassing context of the Georgia call and the attempt to subvert democracy um, and and the threat of violence to um, undermine the certification process, that can be introduced as helpful context to explain the attempted coup or the the violence and the deaths it's 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 relevant and should be explained and and made as part of the argument right i think it's relevant it should be and i'm quite confident it will be explained as part of the context this will be a narrative that it won't be very difficult for the house managers to present again because as i've said it's something that we all witnessed it's not as though it was a complicated matter like the call to President Zelensky of the Ukraine in which the very facts that were at issue needed to be explicated for people who had no first-hand knowledge of them. In this case, the striking point and the thing that makes it very different from any other impeachment in our history, uh, really of any official, not only a president, is that we are talking about a nation asserting its power to preserve self-government against someone who sought to undo the very premises and foundations of self-government in plain view. That is, there are things, of course, that will come out between now and the trial that the president apparently did uh, that we now only have second-hand evidence of that help frame the context. But the key elements of what he did are all 
directly visible and can re- be replayed in front of in front of the Senate chamber. And how swift the trial should commence and conclude depends on the gathering of that evidence and also the testimonies of Congress people themselves, if not uh, Capitol Hill police, the DOD, other relevant parties. It, it, it should be according to the, the evidence and the process of gathering that evidence. Well, that may be a factor, but I don't want to speak for the uh, for the Speaker of the House. It's ultimately her call uh, in consultation with uh, her caucus and with the House managers led by uh, Representative Jamie Raskin. It's ultimately her call when, in light of everything, uh, the articles should be transmitted to the Senate. There is also the question of Senator McConnell's willingness to reconvene the Senate to be able to receive those articles. If he were to have reconvened before the 19th uh, in any of the next several days, perhaps the articles would have been transmitted sooner. But given his desire not to begin until the 19th, the fact that that we're not going to be able to get, uh, get him to move off of that of that fixed position, uh, the question of when after the 19th to transmit the articles, we'll have to take into account not only the gathering of evidence, but the uh, the need for the Senate to address urgent national problems that have gone unaddressed under McConnell's recalcitrant leadership and under the virtual absence of an, of an effective president of the United States. Once the article is transmitted, do you have a recommendation in terms of the length of a trial, uh, which, which again might incorporate the testimony of representatives themselves who were under assault during that period? Uh, it's really too soon to say, and to whatever extent I do have recommendations that bear on the details of how uh, the trial should proceed, I I would be communicating them directly to the House managers and, and not uh, not in a public way. With respect to the Republicans, the 10 Republicans who joined in what was the most bipartisan impeachment effort in the history, uh, how would you suggest making the argument one that is an American argument and not a Democratic argument. And we know with the impeachments of Bill Clinton and, and with the impeachments of, of, of Bill Clinton and Andrew Johnson, that it was perceived as a partisan venture. Now there's an opportunity to make this an American uh, American I, imperative. I, I agree. I think that's very important. I think the statement of Liz Cheney uh, and of other leading Republicans making clear that this was an outrageous assault on the very fabric of the American constitutional system and that the need to prevent any such thing from happening is by no means a need that only one side of the ideological spectrum should appreciate. This is not a question of Democrats versus Republicans. It's a question of Republicans with a small r, uh, people who believe in self-government, a Republican form of government, over people who essentially believe in tearing government apart and in having a strong man leading a cult that takes the country in some direction that does not reflect the will of the majority of the people. That's as American an argument as one could imagine. Uh, and I think it's 
an argument assisted by the unusually bipartisan nature of the impeachment in the House and by the eloquence of those people like Lynn Cheney on the side of the House and and Lisa Murkowski and and others on the now on the Senate side, their eloquence in explaining why this was a threat to the very idea of representative government and the rule of law and had nothing to do with policy differences uh, or partisan differences. Do you think the punishment of those who refuse to certify and perform their constitutional duty should occur simultaneously, uh, specifically with reference to Senators Cruz and Hawley and the House members who not just voted against impeachment, but as we know, refused to certify the results? Um, it, it seems as though impeachment is moving forward while those folks have yet to be punished. And do you believe they should be punished? And if so, should it happen immediately? Well, I would draw a very fundamental distinction between simply those Republican members of the House who voted against certifying the result uh, on whatever ground may have appealed to them, uh, and those who went way beyond that, way beyond simply exercising uh, their right to vote one way or the other, uh, and actually either engaged in reconnaissance missions with the domestic terrorists who then uh, sacked the House the next day, or in the case of Josh Hawley uh, and, and, Ted, uh, and Ted Cruz, went out of their way beyond their role as members of the Senate, certainly outside the scope of the speech and debate clause, in riling up the anger of people with completely false statements about about the existence of massive fraud. I mean, that picture of of Hawley with his fist in the air in an almost Nazi-like posture uh, is not simply a matter of not voting to certify. It's a matter of, of abandoning all principle and putting self-aggrandizement and power hunger above all else. I think senators and representatives who acted that way uh, ought to be expelled by two-thirds of the vote of their respective chambers. But again, it's not my role to tell uh, Senator uh, Schumer, who will be the majority leader, when action should be taken against people like Hawley uh, and, and Cruz. And it's certainly not my role to tell Speaker Pelosi when she believes action should be begun against certain members of of the House who were essentially conspiring with those who threatened the lives of members of the Congress. And not only that, threatened to hang the vice president, to assassinate the Speaker of the House, uh, and would if only they had had a little more time and a little more luck. Uh, have left even more blood on the floor and would have taken hostages. It's really a decision to be made by each chamber when and how to expel and punish the members involved. And I think after that, it will be a function that has to be taken up by the uh, Biden Justice Department under the, I think, quite able leadership of Merrick Garland, who is bound to be confirmed as attorney general, which prosecutions to bring, which investigations to conduct against people in the House or the Senate who, well beyond the protection of the speech and debate clause, were engaged in conspiracy to commit sedition and basically overthrow the government of the United States. 
Final question quickly, Professor. Do you think that this seditious element within the Republican Party, if you want to say conservatism, is at all a natural outgrowth of any of the legal movement of the Federalist Society, specifically the, the shift from you know, strict constructionism and textualism to authoritarianism? Is there any outgrowth of, from people like Hawley and Cruz who represented at one point the conservatism of the legal political nexus now as you describe so eloquently, moving towards rebellion, insurrection, and just power-hungry defiance of the Constitution. Is there any outgrowth of that in the, in the legal movement, uh, or do you only see it as a, as a very insipid political aberration? Well, to call it an insipid aberration, maybe to understate the depth of the undercurrent of, of fascism and white nationalism that it represents, but I would sharply disagree with anyone who seeks to blame uh, the Federalist Society and its originalist and textualist jurisprudence for these horrific, nihilistic, anarchistic, and, and to some extent sadistic elements. It's noteworthy that I guess one of the key founders of the Federalist Society, Stephen Calabresi, has written recently an op-ed, I think, with Norm Eisen, uh, stressing how what happened under the president's uh, urging uh, was in no way consistent with the philosophy, the conservative philosophy of the Federalist Society. People like me who helped to found the American Constitution Society as a kind of an opposite, uh, an opposite source of, of inspiration to the Federalists can agree with the Federalists on certain fundamental precepts uh, I am as devoted at least to the rule of law and to taking the text of the Constitution seriously as the Federalists are. It's just that I read it differently, and I think it has some unspoken elements that are also implicit. So this is not a question of the Federalists versus the ACLU or the Federalists versus the uh, American Constitution Society or real Republicans against Democrats. It's a question of people who believe in self-government under the rule of law and people who believe in the lawless takeover by a strong man and his cult of the instruments of national power. That's what it's about. It's not about alternative jurisprudential views. And I don't think there's anything either logical or emotional that connects this to the underlying impulses of the Federalist Society. Although it's true that a lot of the people who were attracted to that approach were attracted partly for unattractive reasons. And noteworthy that there weren't few, if any, rogue judges. Um, there was fidelity to the law and notwithstanding one of the Federalist Society's members who, who did stand by Trump's insurrection. Um, preeminent constitutional scholar, Professor Larry Tribe. Thank you so much for your insight today. Thank you, Alexander.